Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. Today, so many of us live with deep anxiety about the peril of climate change and the fact that so little progress has been made to halt it. Here in the US, the Trump administration has rescinded even the insufficient advances made during the Obama presidency, including the Clean Power Plan, the Paris Accord, and investments in clean energy. This reality, combined with record-setting temperatures and storms that are increasing in impact and frequency, can incite a sort of paralyzing climate despair. Today's podcast is an antidote to such despair. It features Sakit Soni, a national expert on post-disaster economies, immigrant rights, and the future of work. Executive Director of Resilience Force, Sony offers a proposal to fix the damage wrought by regularly occurring floods, fires, and storms, and in the process, create a more sustainable, just economy. On the ground in Florida and New Orleans, the Resilience Force has already begun to implement these ideas. We'll get to hear about the large-scale implications of his work in a conversation moderated by Sean Sweeney, New Labor Forum columnist and director of Trade Unions for Energy Democracy at the School of Labor and Urban Studies. Sean, given the leadership role you play in global union initiatives to address climate change, we're very fortunate to have you as a regular co-host on Reinventing Solidarity. Very delighted to be part of this interesting and very exciting project. I'm uh, talking today with Sakit Soni um, of Resilience Force. Sakit, you've been uh, literally in the, in the eye of a hurricane, and it's not the first one you've seen. So I'm wondering if you might just give us a few uh, insights of your own. And I'm assuming this helps reinforce in the most powerful energy possible the, the sort of need for fundamental change in sort of labor market uh, protections and the need for a resilience core. We'll come back to that in a moment, but give you an opportunity to tell us what's going on. Well, um, first of all, thanks for having me on, Sean, and, and good to reconnect with you. You know, we often talk about climate change as a future occurrence that we want to intercept and reverse before it's too late. We talk about climate change with great urgency in terms of, you know, degrees of heat and are trying to set out before it's too late to reverse emissions. But 
For many across the United States and across the world in frontline communities, climate change has already disrupted, changed, transformed an entire way of life. And we're more aware of this than, than ever. There are unprecedented floods in the Midwest this year, unprecedented fires in California and the West Coast. And where I've just been and where most of our work is based in the Gulf Coast of the United States, we're having the most active hurricane season in close to two decades. Um, we're only halfway in, and there have been close to half a dozen full-blown hurricanes, countless tropical storms. And I've just come back from evacuating out of the path of Hurricane Delta. We ran out of English letters to name hurricanes this season and crossed over to the Greek alphabet, uh, almost uh, an admission of the kind of mythical proportions now of the challenge we're dealing with. I met people who evacuated not once, not twice, but three, four, five times this year, this season, and came back home to broken streets, flooded homes, you know, damaged neighborhoods, cities that need to be rebuilt. So, you know, climate change and recovery after hurricanes, floods and fires is really a perpetual project for many, many people, millions in this country. And that's what I've just come back from witnessing, you know, the, the climate refugees who we believe to be sometimes a future visitor at the borders of the country is already here. They, they are already uh, among us. They are us. They are a flood or a fire away. They're born in the U.S. They're crossing between uh, Lake Charles and Baton Rouge and Shreveport and Gulfport. And the people helping them come home are a new workforce. But this kind of onset of climate chaos combined with the impacts of the pandemic, I mean, you've written that Resilience is our number one national priority now, and presumably we need a workforce that reflects that priority. Do you see any change in the sort of public debates uh, around the value of immigrant workers, that some of the demands that have been now on the table for several decades for citizenship and full rights, are we closer as a result of the pandemic and the climate emergency? Do you think we are making progress? Yeah, I think we can get closer. I, I think we can get closer, but it's not inevitable. The first thing we have to do is visualize the work. You know, there, there was a time when no one thought that there would be much of a market for cars. And um, in fact, the best projections of the time were that we would sell 400, 500 cars at best. And this new workforce that was rising up mostly in the Midwest to build cars, you know, would, would, would be a niche workforce and then, and then would move on to do what they always did, uh, other kinds of early manufacturing. It turned out that all those projections about cars were wrong. And, you know, the auto workers uh, became a spine of the American middle class. They became a political force they became, through their unions, most importantly, people with good, well-paying jobs and, uh, and bargaining power. They, they held a key for the transformation of the rules of the economy in the United States. Speaking, speaking of unions, though, the idea of a resilience force should be supported by 
you know, a broad band of uh, the labor movement. Are you seeing, are you seeing any um, change in the, in, in the labor narrative? I know you, you've been involved with labor unions and through the Guest Workers Alliance and what they used to call alt-labor a few years ago. Maybe they still call it now, but are you seeing this as something that could resonate with trade unions as a way of boosting membership and raising living standards at the same time? I think there is um, certainly a possibility but I, but I think there needs to be just a, a deeper understanding, you know, of this workforce as climate change has become more present in our lives, as carbon emissions and heat have made precipitation rise, have made extreme weather events, hurricanes, floods and fires more destructive and more frequent recovery and rebuilding after disasters has become the United States' number one perpetual infrastructure project. Year in and year out, we have billions of dollars of damage, and that's only the damage we can monetize, we can count. You made reference to the sort of Works Progress Administration of the New Deal era, and do you see this resilience force as a sort of a permanent body of workers that can both respond to emergencies, but also when presumably there's periods of lull in, in the extreme weather, and who knows how long those periods might be, that they would then turn or be redeployed to do work on, say, retrofitting houses and insulation work, environmental services more broadly? In other words, a permanent part of the U.S. Uh, labor force and the public sector? You know, that's our vision. It's not the way it is right now. Right now, just like any new workforce, the people coming in to rebuild your home to put blue tarp on your roof. So just, you know, let's take a step back and think about it. So a hurricane comes to Louisiana or Alabama, or as happened earlier this year, record rainfall makes rivers rise and overwhelms dams in Michigan. Dams break and cities are flooded. So what happens next is that roads, hospitals, schools, homes, all of those require rapid repair. The next one year is a race against time to quickly, quickly throw tarp on roofs, recover walls, remove debris, all before mold can take a deep hold uh, of, of all of the structures. And that's only the physical rebuilding. There's the rebuilding of our healthcare infrastructure, our social service infrastructure. There's emergency needs like food. So all of this requires a labor force. That's what the resilience workforce is doing. In uh, Louisiana right now, with two hurricanes in six weeks, this is the workforce that's coming in and rebuilding homes, schools, government buildings, so that these cities can rebuild. Now, in an ideal world, we have a large-scale public sector workforce. These are workers like the Works Progress Administration, that are building and rebuilding the country, but also building social cohesion. These would be people who would be able to do mitigation and adaptation work year round. But and when does that- Presumably a multi-skilled workforce as well, because there are so many things involved with adaptation and resilience that um, it's quite an exciting prospect to think there could be a whole new uh, group of workers uh, with the skills to that's right. pay attention to these pressing issues. That's right. You, you have nurses and carpenters, welders and pipe fitters, 
people who could retrofit homes, schools, and buildings, people who could take care to the doorstep, community health workers, counselors, all of these people that are needed more and more as a permanent part of our work of you know, mitigating and, adapt and, and adapting in order to build this new country we need. All of that could be part, all of those people could be part of this workforce. When disasters occur, we'd be able to pull them from the ranks of this permanent workforce and deploy them to disaster areas. That's the, uh, you, you know, that's the hope. That's not the way that disaster response and climate adaptation is happening now. And, you know, frankly, that's the, the fact that it's not happening now is, you know, is a cause of a lot of suffering. Yes, yes. I was always impressed by the Rural Electrification Administration as well in the 1930s. I mean, talk about mission impossible. You know, 6% of rural homes had electricity. Poverty was just absolutely, and this is before the Depression era, there was the depression in agriculture, and then there was all sorts of ecological damage done by over farming, which is where the Dust Bowl came from. Mm -hmm. And that that New Deal program was, I think, is at least as successful as any of the others. And still another example of how you put resources together, people to work, develop skills. And I think it was the first area where unions got into the public sector was in the uh, Tennessee Valley Authority. And um, so that vision uh, always inspires me. But it also, I think, raises a question about in the climate debate, getting the right balance between what you you know what has been called mitigation the reduction of emissions now in order to prevent damage in the future and adaptation has the debate been too much towards mitigation and maybe not enough on this immediate crisis that we're facing and how to respond to it or is it just something that um, happens at the global level and where emissions reduction seems to be the main focus of the debates you know i've been trying to figure this out sean and maybe you can help me sort of track this and think this through. I often feel like it's a false debate. Mm. Of course, we need large scale mitigation projects, chemical plants, power plants, warehouses, large scale factories, but also the carbon footprint, entire cities. All of this needs large scale mitigation and therefore needs a workforce. So, so you have to set out to redesign, rebuild, repurpose in order to decrease carbon emissions. And that's only one small part of the mitigation work that's needed. There's, there's ecological work and all of these other kinds of work. So, so absolutely, that's important. Here's the thing, though. The other thing that's needed is to recognize that there are already communities who are on the front lines of climate change and are hurting year after year. So those dams that broke in this year's first climate disaster in Michigan, where rivers rose and floodwaters overwhelmed the Edenville and Sanford dams and flooded the city of Midland and tens of thousands evacuated. That's an example of a community downstream from a very old structure. Those dams neighborhoods in flood zones, they need to adapt to the new threat posed by floods, 
fires, tornadoes, and hurricanes. And those two needs don't necessarily need to compete with each other. We need to mitigate and reduce carbon emissions. We also need to take entire swaths of the country and adapt them to a new normal, the new volatility that's already here, season after season, year after year. Sometimes we miss each other in our movement, I think. There are times when I speak to people concerned with carbon emissions, and um, I talk about the need for adaptation. What I hear is that, you know, it feels like I'm conceding away the possibility of reducing carbon emissions and thinking of climate change as a fate accompli. On the other hand, sometimes I speak to people focused largely on adaptation and you know, I say, well, look, why don't you expand your scope to mitigation projects, you know? And they often say, yeah, but we, we don't have that bandwidth. You know, we, we're facing crisis year after year. Let's focus on, you know, the prospects of a, a new administration, if, if for a minute. I mean, you've got Joe Biden proudly saying he wouldn't ban fracking. And also that the quite uh, openly distancing himself from the Green New Deal in his so-called debate with the president. Um, what can we expect? And what, in terms of getting the, this administration to, you know, to, t to do what needs to be done around, around climate? Going back into the Paris Agreement, I've got an article coming out in New Labour Forum on this very subject, is considered by many in the sort of liberal community to, to be like, oh, well, that's gonna be climate, our bit up for climate change once we go back into the Paris Agreement. I think people forget that, you know, 10 years ago, President Obama made commitments to the Paris Agreement that got rated D minus by some of the large environmental NGOs. In other words, that's hardly a solution, is it? But can we expect, I mean, what should the climate movement and uh, the resilience movement, if you like, be trying to get out of this administration? How do we, is it at state level, we put pressure at states or are we trying to, through um, you know, our, our friends in Congress, if we have any, you know, what, what, what should they be doing in, in the event of the Biden coming to the White House? Well, a few things. One is that all of us right now who are hard at work, mobilizing, taking people to the polls, you know, making sure that our democracy is saved, need to do it in such a way that we're not too exhausted after the election to remember what democracy is for. The whole point of working as hard as we're working, the whole point of this movement that is trying to save democracy and usher in a new administration then needs to pivot and pressure that administration. We need to make sure that that administration is a vehicle for the kinds of extraordinary changes we need. We are far enough into the climate crisis that we need a large-scale American project, ideally a public project around resilience. We need to look at all of our designs for living, our designs for commerce, our designs for community in the United States, and we need to rebuild them to make us more capable of surviving and thriving as we face the next storm and flood uh, and hurricane because the Gulf Coast, the Midwest, the, the West Coast, these parts of the country are going to continue to face climate vulnerabilities. And, and I think that's where we need to make sure that is a public project, you know, not 
a, a, a vast network of contractors who are disaster profiteers uh, coming in and making a, a cottage industry out of the growing need for resilience, but a large scale public workforce so that getting out of the climate crisis and getting out of the economic crisis are the same journey for poor people, uh, people of color, uh, rural people, you know, the people who, uh, who most desperately need these jobs. Uh, we used to talk about the digital divide in this, in this country. It still exists. The, the newer divide is this resilience divide. Um, there are people who are more likely uh, to bounce back. And then there are people who are experiencing the latest hurricane or the COVID outbreak as only the most recent chapter in a hundreds of years long history of disinvestment, racism, and poverty. And and so how we how we build resilience that is collective, publicly funded, and looks forward to rewrite the rules. That's I think what we need to all be fighting for. I'm gonna just thank you, Sakit, for taking time out of being on the front line down there um, in Florida and and Louisiana. I know you've been there recently. Uh, uh, We obviously are right behind everything you're doing. These ideas are, uh, the time has come. In fact, it came a long time ago, but I think people are waking up now to this, to the sort of big ideas, bold plans, uh, and audacious suggestions that are, that you're uh, championing and we're right with you on that. And, Thank you for uh, for doing this work long before any of us were, Sean. Oh, that's very that's very uh, generous of you. We're, we're all all in this together, trying to work something out for our common future. Um, it would be nice to think that a few decades from now we'll have a stable climate and a stable society with far more equality all around. And uh, that's our dream. It keeps us working. Keeps us going. So, Sakit Sony, thanks for being part of this really interesting interview, and I'll see you somewhere down the tracks. There seem to be two essential pillars of the ambitious project that Sackett advocates. On the one hand, large-scale public investment in a national program of climate change mitigation and adaptation, and on the other hand, the conversion of low-wage precarious work performed often by immigrants and people of color to a permanent, well-compensated resilience workforce. There are some signs in the United States that the political tide may be turning toward a greater role for government in solving our most vexing problems, as well as greater respect for and solidarity with low-wage workers. What do you see as the chief obstacles and opportunities in the current environment to achieve a plan like the one that Sackett proposes? Well, there's uh, many ways to uh, answer this question. I was very inspired by the conversation with Sackett Sony. He's putting together the kind of thinking that really flows out of the whole Green New Deal initiative, which has resonated internationally. It talks about human need, human development in the context of socially necessary work. It's an old term that I think should be revived. It obviously reminiscent of the New Deal of the 1930s under FDR, which we discussed in the interview. Now, in terms of the challenges, obviously there's 
public opinion is polarized. We know this, but we also know that there is a, I think most um, in the US at least, there's most people want to see everybody gainfully employed. And the, I think the primary objection would be that, can we afford it if someone else paying for this work? And I think that's quite easily resolved, but it must be resolved in action. I don't think we need to take a national referendum on this. We need to, there needs to be action to put people to work. And the benefits of putting so many people to work in productive labor, as opposed to gig economy jobs or low paid jobs or low end retail jobs is gonna, is gonna show up in not just improved productivity of labor, but also the, the opportunity for people to grow in terms of their skills and their, what used to be called human capital. And I think that's gonna be, that's an exciting proposition and one that I think pays off enormously uh, in, in years to come. Do, do you see um, what's happened under the pandemic as having also shifted the tide a bit, the, the support for the CARES Act, et cetera? I think all the even before the pandemic, most opinion polls showed that there there was support for basic government interventions and things that really matter. It's the way the question is asked, and I think this is this has been part of the uh, ideologically polarized discussion. But yes, I think there are opportunities uh, to shift the discussion uh, in in a direction that can put climate protection and resiliency at the, at the front of the uh, national agenda. Uh, as Sackett's only said very aptly, in my view, it is a, resilience is a number one, the number one national priority at the moment. I think that's increasingly recognized. And also the closer people are to the disasters that are happening almost, it seems everywhere, not just in the United States, they realize that this is, a, this is an emergency and it requires emergency measures. So I, I'm I'm, I sense that there's a big opportunity here to make, make progress. Sean, at Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, you head up what I believe is the largest organization of unions around the world working to address climate change. I wonder what you've learned in that work about similar kinds of projects in other parts of the world. Are there projects that you've seen either in global south or global north that take up that uh, you know seek to develop projects like the one that uh, Sakatsoni described? I think that other countries have done some of the programmatic work in the sense that they've thought through what needs to be done. For example, the climate jobs campaigns around the world have been very effective in terms of raising the issue of connecting the need for employment with the need for climate protection. That's been very, that's evolved immensely over the last decade or so. In terms of actual on the ground hiring programs, I'm not seeing much of that. Some of this is of course due to the, the lockdown that still exists with the sort of neoliberal idea, the sense that we need some unemployment because well, that keeps you know late wages low and inflation down. So these economic, the economic, orthodoxy around the market is still very, has a very tight grip on perceived policy options. But the work is being done, but there is definitely a learning curve here in the sense that we also, if we're going to really connect job creation to climate protection, 
there's a lot of technical work that needs to be done in order to say, well, what contribution to emissions reductions does, does a, a retrofitting a building right. uh, mean? And I think that's, that's some of the work now that the progressive forces around the world are, beginning, are becoming much more aware that this is not an easy thing to do. You can't have a global economy that's been built on fossil fuels. The entire capitalist system would not exist. Imagine what would have happened if fossil fuels had not been discovered or never existed. I mean, it's a, it's a mind game, but okay. where, what would the human species look like today? First, it'd be a lot less of us, but also this connection of energy to political economy is really totally fossil-based, some nuclear, yes. But when we look at the replacing all that fossil fuels, even if we allow for some reduction in energy demand, which would be very incremental in my view, it could be faster. And I think it's a key front line in climate protection to reduce energy demand. Then we still got the problem of, um, of, of replacing all that fossil-based power with a different type of energy. So these technical debates used to be going on among sort of scientists, usually white guys in laboratories or, or you know, with clipboards in their hands. Now it's becoming part of the movement. And I see that as a global phenomenon. And it's quite an exciting one because we're all taking responsibility uh, for the solution or trying to work out what needs to be done. Very important and exciting conversation that we'll, we'll be sure to continue on this show and so glad to have you here to be able to do that. Engagement in issues like this forms the basis of the classroom experience at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.